If you have spent some time talking to unbelievers or perhaps just thinking about the challenges in your own life, chances are you've heard non-believers ask you this age-old question, and perhaps you've even pondered it in your own life. And it's a simple question. Why does a good God allow suffering? Now, this question is part of a broader conversation that people have had almost since the beginning of time. And it's part of the broader study called the problem of evil. So on one hand, we say, okay, God is sovereign. Do we agree with that? Yes, he's sovereign. He's God. He's in control. He's king. He's also good and he's loving. So why then do we have evil in the world? Theodicy, T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y, is a word that theologians use when we engage in the task of vindicating God, if you will, of providing biblical reasons why God allows evil or specifically why God allows suffering. And the the intention there is to vindicate God from allegations of wrongdoing by presenting biblical reasons as to why God allows evil in the world. Now, while there are many nuances in your own life and in your own suffering and in a certain setting at a certain place and time as to why God may be allowing suffering, while there are many nuances to this question, broadly speaking, there are at least four reasons why God allows evil and suffering in his creation. The first is that God allows evil as a consequence of sin which is the most obvious reason. We read about that in Genesis chapter three. When our forebears chose to rebel against God, there were real enduring consequences to that rebellion, which we still participate in and are recipients of. Secondly, God allows evil to expand our faith. If you can figure it all out, and strategize your way out of all suffering and insulate yourself from all difficulty, then you don't need God. So suffering in part serves to increase our faith. Third, suffering is used by God to judge his enemies. God uses suffering to judge his enemies, his opponents. And fourth, God allows evil in the world to sanctify and build up his people. Now, in the moment, we may not always like that. But if you've been walking with Jesus for a period of time, you know exactly what I'm talking about. In the moment, it might have been very difficult. And you might have been asking, why in the world, God, have you allowed this to happen? But in hindsight, there's a strange thankfulness for it. Because you're further ahead, you're more mature. You've been winnowed as we would say. The the chaff in your life has been separated from the wheat. So these are, broadly speaking, reasons why God allows evil in the world. And we also would affirm as Christians that all evil and all suffering is temporary. It doesn't last. It's It's a temporary problem. These are temporary allowances because, to quote from Hebrews chapter two, verse eight, this is what Jesus accomplished on the cross. The Bible says, in putting everything, and that's a strong word, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. That's why we often say he is king of kings and Lord of lords. He is not just the king of the church. 
He's king of the world. Everything is in subjection to him. But get this, it hasn't yet been made obvious to some because the passage goes on to say, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So it is in subjection to him, but we have not yet witnessed everything being yet in subjection to him. Meaning this, he's already won, and in due time, everyone will finally and fully realize it. And every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and King to the glory of God the Father. Now, I begin my sermon this way because as we enter into Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter 12 is an example of those very things. It's an example of God using suffering to accomplish those very things in the life of Christian people. It's an example of God using great evil, even the murder of a Christian to sanctify his people and expand the church. It's an example of God proving his power over a tyrant king who thought he was pretty hot stuff and had thumbed his nose at God. And it serves as a warning to evildoers, to those who have not yet bowed the knee, of their imminent demise, which is a sure thing. And it also serves to galvanize, to build up, to buttress the faith of the faithful few who have surrendered themselves to God in their suffering and even up to and including their own deaths. It galvanizes us. So let's get into Acts chapter 12. Several truths are seen here that address this broader theme. What we'll learn at the beginning of the text is, is sort of the bad news. It's, it's the bummer. It's the down, downward part of the text. It's the, it's the rough, raw, difficult circumstances that Christians may find themselves in. Sometimes God allows his people to be murdered or imprisoned. That has been something we have witnessed from the first century up to the present. God's people being murdered, God's people being imprisoned, God's people being charged, God's people being abused at the hands of evildoers. Check it out, Acts 12.1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, okay, here we have a classic move of tyrants. They commit an evil deed, they lick their finger, they put it in the air, and they determine which way is the wind blowing. Do I have public applause or not? How am I polling? And he discovers that people like what he's done. So he continues it. He killed James with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, meaning a Jewish feast. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison. Notice the details. Delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, 
intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. You know what I love about the Bible? It's real. It's not propaganda. It's real. The Bible doesn't try to conceal or hide the reality of human suffering. Have you noticed that? It actually includes many instances where God's people suffer. It doesn't attempt to hide the reality of evil. It does not try to vindicate God by denying the suffering that people face or deny the presence of very bad people. And what is God's world? And the bad guy here is none other than King Agrippa, the grandson of Herod the Great. Now, what is interesting about this individual, sad really, is that oftentimes when God's people are attacked, it's from without. It's the Babylonian king coming in and taking them into captivity. It's the Assyrian king, Sennacherib, coming in, and, coming in and attacking them. It's the Roman legions coming in and attacking them. It's the Pharaoh enslaving them. Did you know that King Herod Agrippa was a Jew? Part of the Hasmonean dynasty. He was a Jewish king, one of the great Herods that ruled Judea at the time. He was a descendant of their forebear, Abraham and all the sons of promise that would come from him. So this is an in-house job. This is a man that should have known better, but you know what? Guess where he was educated? In Rome. He was sent off to Rome to be educated, and guess what? Surprise, surprise, he came back acting like a Roman. That's how it often happens, right? You send your kids off to the Romans, you spend time with the Romans, you come back acting like a Roman. He was acting like a Roman here. He was an enemy of the people of God. And he was thoroughly corrupted with anti-Christian sentiments. Unfortunately, he's not the last one in human history. There've been many, many people since him that hate Jesus Christ. And if you notice this, when people hate Jesus, they always hate his bride. They always hate his bride because his bride represents his purposes in the world. His bride serves as his embassy in the world. So they know they can't get to Jesus himself. They already tried that in the first century and he was resurrected from the grave. So they go after his bride. They try to crucify and kill and murder his bride. These are power hungry, godless, hateful people. Herod expresses his hatred towards the bride of Christ in two incidents. The first incident is the murder of the apostle James. The second incident is the imprisonment of the apostle Peter. Now this James was none other than James, the son of Zebedee. There are several Jameses, just as there are several Simons in the scripture. This is James, the son of Zebedee. And while he was not the first Christian martyr, he was the first apostle who was martyred for his faith in Jesus Christ. Historical records show that he was put to death in the year 44 at the relatively young age of 39 years old. So this is a young man in his prime that's put to death for his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's also the same year that the Herod who had him beheaded would also be put to death by God. 
Eusebius, one of the early church fathers, writes that when James was about to be beheaded and he was in his prison cell, his faith was so strong that one of the soldiers that was sent to guard him came to faith in Jesus Christ, professed his faith publicly, and was also executed on the chopping block with James. Now, whether that's accurate or not, we don't know. But what we do know is that that kind of thing has happened over and over and over again. The fact of history, and we have 2,000 years of it at our disposal now since the founding of the church, the fact of history is that death, while tragic, persecution, while tragic, always backfires on God's enemies. Always backfires. And the church always grows the most rapidly under persecution The church always grows most rapidly when it is tried, when people actually have to decide, is this whole Jesus thing just a cultural thing that I've bought into, or am I actually a follower of Jesus Christ? And if you follow Jesus Christ, where does it lead? It leads to a cross. Fortunately, it also leads to an empty tomb. But the cross comes before the empty tomb. Suffering comes before resurrection. And redemption. Tertullian, another church writer, would observe, and we can roughly translate this into English as follows. Many of you have probably heard it. That the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Meaning that when Satan comes and overplays his hand and raises up tyrants, when evildoers try to attack God's people, all it does is fertilize and nourish, and build up, and cause the rapid expansion of the church. 15 years ago, I taught on a couple of occasions in the underground church in China. Well, you know what it's like in China. On the news, they try to present themselves as this modern, forward-thinking society. But to meet outside of one of the government-sanctioned churches is illegal. And it's rare that they put people to death, but you know what they do? I heard personal first-person testimony from a brother of such a man. My brother was pastoring a church. They put him in jail for three years for pastoring a church. But they don't want to kill him in jail because then they'd be exposed. So what they did is they beat him so badly the day of his release and then released him. He died the next day outside of jail. Folks, this is in the 2000s. This is modern history. But the church in China is still growing. Surprise, surprise. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Now we can ask this question. Why do the godless persecute Christ's bride and embassy? Why is it that every tyrant in human history always has a problem with the church of Jesus Christ if if it exists in his territory? Well, the first and main reason is that Jesus Christ claims to be king of kings and lord of lords. Listen to that again. King of kings, lord of lords. Doesn't deny the reality of kings and lords in the world. But it does deny any king or any lord absolute authority over their realm. Jesus claims to be the prime minister of prime ministers, the premier of premiers, 
the president of presidents in modern language, we could say the mayor of mayors, the pastor of pastors, the husband of husbands. He has put all things in subjection under him. And if you love Jesus, you're like, I'm cool with that. I I know what his benevolent reign is like, but if you are still living in your own, of your own power, in your own sin, that is an offensive message. Many of the great world religions, they're just not offensive. They're inclusive. It's like you can take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and mix it all together into a religious blender and believe whatever you want, live however you want. But biblical Christianity makes an exclusive claim. There is a creator to whom you are accountable. And he is benevolent. And he is loving and he is merciful. But don't mess with him. Because he will guard his holiness and his authority at all costs. So fundamentally, the problem with tyrants is a question of authority. And so this is why we must incessantly and repeatedly and relentlessly assert the absolute lordship of Jesus Christ over the ministry and worship of the Christian church and over our country without apology. Secondly, sinful man is naturally offended by the gospel. This is why we've even concocted in many Christian churches all sorts of good deeds, you're a pretty good guy, you're a pretty good girl kind of theologies to try to appease that appetite that we have for some sort of self-affirmation. But the Bible has a very desolate view of human nature prior to being regenerated by the Spirit of God. We're sinners. We are more rebellious than we understand. And that's an offensive message that rubs people the wrong way, especially those that are charitable and try to be good. We just don't like to hear that. We like to be affirmed. We like to be applauded. Well, the Bible is a message of grace and mercy. But grace and mercy comes after you realize you need it. You need grace and you need mercy because you have a problem. And sinful man is offended by the gospel. Third, there's a natural propensity in every human being to be self-governing. We call this autonomy. Auto, self, namas, laud. Now the radical autonomists who have power at their disposal will almost always resort to violence to maintain their authority. They don't want to have a conversation with you. They just call the police. They call up the military. They create a trumped-up charge. They change the criminal code. They create a bylaw. They threaten you. They harass you. This is a classic move of tyrants. Not after the conversations have been had. There's no conversation to be had because they have all the tools in their toolboxes. And, and this, is, this is the thing. The church fights with words and with actions that are righteous. But the godless always immediately go to their arsenal of penalties to try to penalize you to get their way. We see it in the present, and it's nothing new. It's an age-old tactic of tyrants. Fourth, they're people-pleasers. I'll just go back and reemphasize this point. When Herod, in anger, had James put to death, he immediately looked around to see what the human response would be. Can I get, can I get away with it again? Do people like what I've done? Instead of founding his decisions on timeless moral principles like the faithful Christian should do, we determine what's right and wrong not based upon the moral majority or the moral the immoral majority, 
But we look to God's word. What does God tell us? How should we react in situation A, B, or C? What does God tell us? We're principled people, hopefully. The tyrant is a people pleaser. They look around and, oh, if I can appease the majority, I'll get away with it. And, and finally, they're conniving. They're deceptive. They're wily. This is how they get their way. So all of this, brothers and sisters, is to say, the Bible does not hide the fact that we should expect suffering and persecution as Christians. If you got a problem with that, take it up with God, because that's the reality of the moment. But now we're going to shift into some good news. Sometimes God miraculously rescues his people in the moment, in the present realm. Now, ultimately, he will rescue and redeem all of us who love him, but sometimes he miraculously rescues his people in the moment. The narrative goes on to say, now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. So look at how impossible his circumstances were. He's sleeping between two soldiers. He's bound with two chains and centuries before the door were guarding the prison and behold into all of this, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision, which is kind of understandable. This is so out of the ordinary. Am I dreaming or is this, is this reality? But soon he's going to discover that it's, it's actually uh, reality. When they had passed the first and second guard, notice the details, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. That's called a miracle. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Humanly, the descriptions are vivid of an impossible set of circumstances. How in the world could Peter possibly MacGyver his way out of this prison cell? And the answer to that is by himself, he couldn't. It was an impossible circumstance, which is the perfect set of circumstances for God to perform a miracle. And he does. And there's no question about the fact that God then alone gets the glory. It's actually eerily similar to Christ's interment. Christ in the tomb. There's a stone over the door. There's two Roman soldiers out front and suddenly he's not in the grave anymore. And there's two angels standing there proclaiming what Christ has done. And the soldiers are bewildered how in the world Jesus escaped. Peter got out. There were guards to overcome. There were chains to break. There was an iron gate to get through. Nothing is impossible for or with God. And Peter is let out. And Peter's response is the response that you and I should have whenever we're redeemed. 
What's the first thing you do when you've been redeemed, when you've been blessed, when you've been rescued by God? You praise him. Shortly thereafter, you testify. But the first thing you do is you praise. Praise is a you-to-God experience. Testimony is a you-to-others-about-God experience. Praise is deeply personal. Testimony is deeply public. And Peter, we will see, does both of those things. And that's the rightful response to God's redemption. By the way, if God has redeemed you and blessed you in the past, and you've never seen fit to praise him or testify to his goodness, why should he bother in the moment? If you're you're the glory hound trying to take credit for your redemption or your rescue or your vindication, you don't give glory to God. Maybe he's allowing you to suffer again because he wants to teach you a lesson of reliance. Third, and we've already gotten into this point, but I want to draw it a little bit further. Whenever God redeems us, we must testify. We must tell others about it. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. This is the second time we discovered that the church was praying for Peter. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate, which is kind of funny. But you can imagine Peter being in a kind of a bit of an awkward set of circumstances, like, please let me in. They could be back for me any time. But she runs inside. And then this event takes place, which also is very Thomasian. It's, it's very similar to Thomas's reaction when he hears that Jesus has been resurrected. He's like, well, I don't believe it. I have to see it. And here, while they're praying, which is on one hand, a demonstration of faith, clearly their faith hasn't fully developed yet because they don't believe that God has actually rescued Peter yet. So what, what is their response to her? Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy She did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing by the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. (laughs) But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. Like, it can't be Peter. How how quickly they forget the the wonder-working power of God. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them, how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. He didn't make up some fanciful tale. You know, I found this file and I filed through the chain and I'm a pretty buff dude. So I, you know, deck the soldiers and I squeezed through the gate or I scaled some wall. He could have made up a big fanciful tale to take credit for himself, couldn't he? He doesn't do that. He immediately assigns all the credit to God. The Lord brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James. This is a different James now. And to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. God's people are doing what God's people should be doing in impossible circumstances. Praying. Praying. That's why we need to be a people of prayer. In a broken world, we need to be a people of prayer because there's all sorts of obstacles that we cannot in and of ourselves overcome. Maybe there's some folks in the room here today that consider themselves fairly strategic thinkers. 
you have an issue, you then think through it, you find the resources, you solve the problem. You're a problem solver. Maybe that's your specialty in your place of employment. You're the problem solver. You're the person people go to when there's a problem that no one else can solve. Well, brothers and sisters, I don't care how strategic you are or how smart you are, how much of a problem solver you are in a broken world, there will be problems you cannot solve by yourself. And so we call upon God regularly to do the impossible. We pray, but in our prayer, (laughs) we can't make the error of assuming the worst necessarily either, or assuming that God could not do what we can't do, which I think is the error they're making here. Peter visits them. We have the overly excited girl. They're not sure. He testifies to God. And as a result, they finally get it. And God is rightfully glorified. If you have been delivered, first of all, saved, let's start there. But secondly, rescued and redeemed along the way from false allegations or whatever it might be from some persecution. Don't waste your deliverance by keeping it private. Testify to it. Praise the Lord for what he has done, but also testify to God's deliverance. It blesses people to hear when God comes through for his people. So testify to it. Now we are, we, we are introduced to a second James. Uh, this James is now prominent in the church. This is James, the brother of Jesus, who would later write the, what we call the epistle of James. And he too, interestingly, would be martyred not more than 20 years later. I want to make this point. James, the apostle, had spent three years being apprenticed by Christ. And in God's sovereign plan, not much more than a dozen years or so after Christ's crucifixion, he's put to death by the sword. He was a great man. It was a major loss to the church. But you know what it reminds me of when suddenly he's out of the picture and there's another James rising to prominence in the church? None of us is indispensable. None of us is indispensable. The Lord doesn't need this guy to accomplish his will in the world. He doesn't need you. You're not indispensable. Generations come and go. And God will always raise up leadership. He will always raise up faithful men and women to represent him well in the world. So do your best to serve the Lord, serve him well, but never fall into the trap of thinking, you know, the world's going to fall apart if you disappear. It was a tragedy that James was put to death. But now another James rises to prominence in the church. You'll also see Peter here retreating to an undisclosed place. It's very similar to Saul when he was being lambasted in Jerusalem, jumped on a boat and headed on up to Tarsus. So here's the tension. Here's the tension. You're never going to avoid, if you're a faithful follower of Christ, a measure of persecution and trial and tribulation. You might even be put to death for it. You might do some jail time for the cause of righteousness. But it doesn't mean you need to show up at the precinct, hey, arrest me. Here he evades arrest and he evades capture to live another day. So we don't throw our pearls before swine. We don't unnecessarily expose ourselves to persecution, but we do the right thing and allow God to do what he alone is going to do. Now, here's where it gets really good. In due time, God's enemies will perish and linked to that gospel ministry will 
continue. Now, this happens in two phases. God's judgment is now poured out upon those that are evildoers. Verse 18. Now, when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he said to the soldiers, well, you guys, you did your best. Put it here. I'm going to give you a promotion. Things didn't work out your way. But you followed orders. So way to go, guys. Is that what he says? Now, look, look at his actions. This is a classic of a tyrant. You work for a tyrant, expect to be thrown under the bus by him. So after he searches and could not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Wow. You know what happens when you hitch your wagon to a tyrant horse? You get taken over the cliff. I think there's a lesson here for us. We may feel sorry for these soldiers thinking, well, you know, they were two or three steps down the authority ladder. They were just doing their job. Hey, if you're an official, a soldier, a police officer, a lesser government official, a paid technocrat, the assistant to the assistant to the assistant's former roommate three times removed for someone in power, and you're asked to do something wrong, and you're asked to violate moral principles, you don't say, well, just following orders, sir. Not only will you get thrown under the bus when they're exposed, but you too will be judged by God for your actions. The excuse I was just doing my duty won't fly. Even if the idea of the evil deed didn't start with you. So if you are under authority, but in any position of authority, here's what you need to take home with you. Never violate your own conscience or you too will be judged by God. Now, secondly, God goes after Herod himself. So we're fast forward now. There's a different incident and we don't really care that much about the details of it, but there's a different incident to illustrate Herod's arrogance. So here's the incident. Now, Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. These were coastal cities that he had some sort of commercial agreement with. He was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. So there's some sort of an agreement here where Tyre and Sidon are getting food supplies for sure not for free, but they're purchasing food supplies from Herod Agrippa. And there's some sort of a a disruption in the food chain, the the commercial flow of of traffic. There's some sort of a a breach of the trade relationship. And so they come to try to make peace to, to reinstate this agreement. Okay, so who really cares? What we do care about is his response. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. Well, we don't know what the content of his speech were, was, but based upon his character, we can probably guess it was about him. So the people respond, not likely because they actually believed it, but because they wanted to 
puff up his feathers because he was their connection to food. Here's what they say to him. And the people were shouting, the voice of God and not of a man. Do you remember when Peter met Cornelius and Cornelius fell prostrate before him and started worshiping him? What did Peter immediately do to this man? He said, don't worship me, I'm just a man, worship God. That's what Herod should have done. But there's no record between verse 22 and 23 of him in any way, shape or form correcting the idolatry that these people were committing. In fact, all indications are he accepted it and enjoyed it. And so what does God do? God permitted James to be put to death, but God would not permit his holiness to be suppressed, his grandeur, his lordship to be suppressed. Because after all, we know the mission of God is the glory of God. You get saved as a byproduct, but the mission of God is not your salvation. God is on a mission to bring glory to himself. And when Herod violates that, keep in mind, as a king who's a descendant of his covenantal people, immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And then this grotesque depiction, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So we have the trade dispute in the text. The bad people are clashing with the bad people because things aren't going well for them. The snake is starting to eat its own tail. Herod decides to capitalize on it because bad people love to grandstand. They love the spotlight. And he permits himself to be worshipped. Now, historical records outside the Bible actually record this event as occurring in the year 44 AD. And in the depictions of this particular event, he's in a public theater. And he's suddenly gripped with stomach pains, overwhelming stomach pains. And within a few hours, dies. Now, we have that historical record. And then we have the biblical record where worms are mentioned. And you might read it and think, oh, they're talking about worms that ate his body after he died. Because after all, when people die and they're buried, you know, worms eventually eat your body. I don't think that's what's being talked about here. I think this is referring to the means of his death, which actually ties to the historical account of him experiencing these massive abdominal pains. And so here's what I want to tell you. If the worms mentioned here are meant to convey the means of his death, death, I know it's kind of a gross scene, but it's especially grotesque to think that this man's death resulted from being eaten from the inside out by parasites. Can we all just say like, yuck? I mean, that's not the way I'd want to go. But this is the way that Herod goes. And it's a fitting way in light of his treason against God and the atrocities that he committed against God's people. This is a man, this is a man that permitted himself to be called in the most blasphemous way, the voice of God. The man that was called the voice of God 
is put to death by the true word of God, who alone creates and spoke the world into existence. The true and living word puts to death this usurper who's seeking to position himself as the voice of God. And it's actually, for all its grotesque nature, a beautiful picture of God's redemption and judgment on any who usurp his authority or attack his people. And this is the great eschatological vision of the Christian faith, that that is the destiny of those that would stand in the way of Christ the King. Eventually, there will be eternal death that awaits all who thumb their nose at God and seek to usurp his authority. And here's the benefit in the first century. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Surprise, surprise, the church grows. It happened in Damascus. It happened in Jerusalem. It happened in Antioch. Now it's happening again and again and again. It'll repeat itself time and time again throughout history. And we have indications of this with references in the final verse to missionaries. And Barnabas and Saul, remember they'd been up ministering in Antioch. They now returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So we're just being introduced to more and more faithful preachers and Christian leaders who are continuing to extend the mission of Christ into the world. Here's the reality, brothers and sisters. It's easy to look back on the biblical record. And in one chapter, we see the problem, we see the solution, and we see God's redemption and say, yeah, I can go with that. That increases my faith. I mean, that really builds me up. It's easy to look back and cheer at this account since we already have seen and read and heard the end result. But you know as well as I do that it's a whole lot harder to live in the moment when you might be experiencing it. When the soldiers are still on both sides, when the chains are still on, when the gate is still closed, it's a whole lot easier, a whole lot more difficult to put our faith in God when we're still in the proverbial prison cell. But nevertheless, faith is the key to enduring now, just as it was the key to enduring then. And faith is not, listen to this, faith is not some sentimental feeling that you just sort of rustle up from within, devoid of facts or reality. When we put our faith in, it's in someone and all the promises that he has uttered. So there's a substance to our faith. There's an object to our faith. Faith is the verb. God is the object of it. We put our faith in God and in his promises. And we can do that even in the moment. Maybe some of you feel like you're kind of in a prison cell, like you're shackled, like you're being persecuted. Maybe not to the degree that he was, but you've been demoted. You've been ridiculed. You live in a lot of fear as you see our culture collapse around us and all the nonsense and antichrist ideologies daily, moment by moment being pumped out by the media and our politicians and you're just exhausted by it and you've lost hope. Well, we needn't lose hope. We need to put our faith in the God who can redeem and restore 
and bring restoration, who will ultimately bring restoration and redemption, but also just might bring a period of reformation in this world as well. You don't know what he has in mind. So may I encourage you to put your faith in the God who rescued Peter, and by the way, who ultimately redeemed James on the other side of the chopping block. Simple lesson. If you're God's enemy, be warned, you will fail. Better to repent now than to eternally be separated from God in the pit known as the lake of fire, which will be your destiny. If you continue to rebel against your creator, And if you are God's friend, trust him. Trust him in the moment and you'll be redeemed. If not in your prison cell, then certainly on the other side of the grave in the glorious presence of our eternal king.